Joining me now, Drs. David and Catherine Deevil. Dr. David is the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and assistant professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas. He's written many articles and chapters and books in academic journals, as well as articles in popular places such as Catholic World Report, First Things, Minneapolis Star Tribune, National Review, and the Wall Street Journal. And his wife, Catherine, is also with us. as She is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas, and she received her doctorate in philosophy from Fordham University and specializes in ancient Greek philosophy. Dr. David, Dr. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Very good to have you with us. Now, you're, you've got so many things that we could talk about, and I'd love to spend the entire hour just unpacking uh, some of your thoughts around <clears throat> a variety of philosophical and theological issues. But we, are, we, have, we have a trajectory here that we need to follow. So we're talking about the upcoming Faith and Culture series as part of the Archdiocesan Synod, and you are up next to share on sexual morality so let me start. Uh, let's see, let's see, ladies first. Let's start with Dr. Catherine. Tell us a little bit about why um, the church's understanding of sexual morality is so important in our in our culture today. Sure. So the thing that strikes me most about church teaching is that it focuses on what we are as human beings considered as a whole. So when we talk about sexual morality or any other kind of morality. Church teaching says that we need to be respected physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And any time that we downplay or uh, try to get around, so to speak, one of those aspects, we're losing something that's important to us as human beings. So as, as with other kinds of morality and sexual morality, the question is, what is worthy of me as a physical, emotional, and spiritual being? So how does sex unite me to another human being and open me into the love of God in those three ways? So a sexual love that's worthy of a human being has got to be respectful of all three of those aspects. Mm -hmm. Right. Dr. David, what about you? What what would you say are some of the main points of uh, Catholic sexual morality that is so applicable in our our times today? Well, I think one of the things is that... uh, Sexual uh, teaching of the church is actually very consistent, and uh, you know, as Kathy said, it applies all over the place. But it's it's actually what uh, provides for the goods and protects us. Uh, we, you know, we live in an age in which people have sort of accepted the the ongoing sexual revolution that you know it in a way began in the '60s. We've always had sexual immorality, and we've always had these ideas. But uh, you know, we we live in a world in which there are very few babies and very fewer and fewer marriages, and the, the, the reality is that many people think, oh, well, that's wonderful. Now people can sort of have these free love relationships. But uh, as a lot of demographers have shown, what we're seeing in the, in the world now is a, is a situation in which many houses are now one-person houses. It's not that people are free to, to live lives of, of open love, but they're actually alone, and we have a great loneliness uh, that's there. And, and pe- people don't connect that to the Church's sexual teaching, but it's really the result, because the Church's sexual teaching protects our ability to actually form families and to form real loving relationships that last and make us not lonely. Hmm. Right, and so there are many, many ways, obviously, just as you both have expounded upon, that that uh, the teaching could be very relevant in our culture today. But let's let's uh, narrow the field down a little bit to those who are 
either they're self-proclaimed Catholics or um, perhaps they are practicing Catholics. Dr. Catherine, let me ask you, what do you think some of the misconceptions are uh, are about out there that are even present within the within those who would say that they are Catholic, they do, they do practice the Catholic faith about the Church's teachings on sexual morality? Sure. Uh, let me maybe move with a, a big one. I think one of the one of the pervasive ones presently is that my desires define me, or uh-huh. my desires are either part of my identity, who I am, or my desires, unless I meet them, right, will will be still there, and thus I'll be unhappy. So I would say it applies to everyone, that in our culture we're told, right, follow, follow your dreams somehow becomes, if I don't chase my desires, whatever mm-hmm. they may be, then I will be unhappy. But that, I think, is a huge, huge misconception. So that would make us actually slaves to our desires. That says that my desires define me. And that's just not true. Mm. So for, for sexual teaching, we have this notion that I can take what I want and then leave these other things. So say with contraception, right, I could act for unity of the spouses and block procreation and not really have given up anything. Right, so you can take one part and ignore this other part, but I'm I'm free to do that because that's following my desire, and not to follow my desire would make me and possibly my spouse unhappy. But to do that is to suggest a that my desires are somehow the prime thing about me, so that I, if I were to step back and reason about what I should or shouldn't do, clearly, I think when you say it this way, it's just clearly not the case that following your desires is always the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think when you say it that way, everybody says, oh, well, of course. But somehow it's this background assumption that many people bring to talking about sexual morality, such that we can sometimes be blind to the way that following our desires turns us away from self-gift toward my own personal self-fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And that's not what sex is supposed to do. Sex is supposed to be a self-gift to another person. It's supposed to be faithful and permanent, and it's supposed to be concerned with the good of the other person for that person's own sake. And when we say it that way, my good and the good of another person, maybe that's in line with my desires at any given moment, but maybe that means that I need to pull back on my own desires and, in fact, put someone else's good first. So I think that there's this background assumption that desires have this outsized place in the way that our actions and happiness function. Let me follow up with you with one question on that. Do you think, I mean, Dr. David mentioned before, you know, we've had sexual immorality for well, as long as the human race has existed, I suppose, or just about as long. Um, but what about this kind of primacy of desire? Has that has that uh, been heightened in recent times, say in the 20th and 21st century? Or would you would you estimate that maybe it's being expressed or maybe it's being fed in different ways recently? What would you say to that? Um, I tend to think it's being fed in different ways. I think you'll always find it different places. Um, but I'll just say I finished up a semester where I got to teach ancient philosophy, which I love. But it's always interesting to me to see how much figures like Plato, so, right, you know, 
early Greek thinker, no connection to Christianity whatsoever. Um, one of the big themes of his masterwork, The Republic, is that unless you're actively putting reason as the guide for your soul, desires is the default. That will mm. be the default guide for your soul. So it's interesting to me that there, it's always been there. Right, and it's it's always been acknowledged. I would say that desire and emotion are these incredible motivators, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, but also um, in some sense of the default setting for human beings. So, what actually takes work is habit and virtue of aiming them in the right directions. Whereas, I think one of the interesting trends in say the last fifty, sixty years, you'll have maybe not quite so much anymore, but this business of, well, relativism. So maybe we can't really trust that there's objective truth or that somebody who has a rational system can actually get at something real or true. Well, if you have this undermining of a belief that reason can actually get at something true, then what do you default to? Mm -hmm. Right? You default to the strongest thing pulling you, which is typically your desires, your emotions. So I think there has been more recently, this undermining of reason as a way that we universally as human beings can come to know objective truth. And once you've begun to undermine that, then the the obvious place to turn, I mean, whether we're saying this consciously or not, but the obvious place to turn is going to be to say, well, if that's not going to do it, then I guess I should just do what seems most pressing. Right, right. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Very well put. Dr. David, let me ask you, are, is there any particular aspect of the Church's teaching on sexual morality that you are looking forward to sharing with the Faith and Culture series that uh, you are most wanting to drive home, as it were? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the whole teaching on marriage um, and in sort of clearing up some misconceptions, because a lot of people, you know, will hear the term traditional marriage and they'll say, oh, well, you know, that's bad. That's an oppressive system. And of course, one of the things that that we're trying to trying to get at is that uh, we're not just talking about any traditional marriage. There have been plenty of traditions in the world of marriage in which women have been essentially property and have not had had equal rights, and ones in which, well, it was expected that women were faithful sexually, but men could kind of do do whatever they want. And what's revolutionary about the church's teaching, and it was when when the church burst onto the world 2,000 years ago and still is today is that instead of saying, well, okay, if men can be, if men can kind of go out and sow their wild oats and, and do whatever they want, then women should be able to, too. And the Church's teaching is a revolution because it says, no, no, the, the healthiest thing is that both of you are faithful and freely giving each other forever. And that's what builds up the stability that builds up a society and builds up a culture. Yeah. And that's obviously fundamentally important in the Church's understanding of sexual morality within the context of marriage and uh, how that is applicable to our larger society and what that does. Um, Dr. Catherine, let me ask you, is this the first time that uh, you and your husband have taught together? Well, actually, we have had the great privilege of being part of the preparation for married couples within the archdiocese. So, um, they, it rotates, of course, but on various occasions, we've gotten to to give that talk. Um, it's slightly different, of course, in that we're speaking to an audience of engaged couples. Um, but, but it is it's lovely to speak with him. And uh, this may be kind of a funny thing to say, but uh, since we both teach and we have 
you know, Paso children at home, I, I don't often get to actually hear him give public lectures <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, there's so many other things happening. So it's actually been uh, a delight to me to be able to give a talk where I can sit back and listen to him for half of it. It's been yeah. quite nice. <laughs> yeah, well, very good. And showing a little bit of the complementarity of marriage going on there as well as you both get to encourage the other one on. That's wonderful. Uh, Dr. David, is this so as you've been giving these talks to these engaged couples, which I guess I'm just presuming are, are largely younger couples, um, how do you feel that some of these talks are landing? Are they are they are they sinking in? Are people getting it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it's true that, the you know, the, the profile of engaged couples has gotten older over the years, but there's still a lot of young couples. And I I, I get a sense that in both older and younger couples, that when they actually hear what the church teaches, that they think, "Oh, <laughs> this, you know, this this kind of you know this is actually what we want. Um, mm-hmm. This this actually matches the the romantic aspirations that we have about what marriage is. Instead of you know our our culture's sort of idea of marriage as a kind of partnership in which you know if one person doesn't fulfill this, it's kind of like a contract. You know, you get a new cell phone contract." You get a new marriage. Uh, th- this actually responds to what we what we all really want, which is to be loved uh, until death do us part, and to have a bond that's uh, that's in some in some ways stronger than death. Right, and yeah, I I'm glad to hear that it corresponds with what people are still wanting. Doctor Catherine, do you see that as being a continued thing? Are we are we uh, going to be facing a f- more fierce enemy in, in days to come, do you think, in terms of people's uh, own desires of what they actually want out of marriage? Well, one of the funny things about desires is that desires actually, <laughs> ironically, uh, follow reason. So mm. it's when we understand something as desirable that we then desire it. So that if we, if we understand something differently over time, it could be more or less lovable to us, more or less desirable to us. So one of the things that I've actually very much enjoyed uh, in our talks with married couples, uh, just being able to say out loud to them that often our culture says kids, right? Kids mm-hmm. ought to be either postponed until you have everything ready, right? The nursery is painted and you have half their college tuition saved up and who knows what else. Um, so right, kids are to be held at arm's length and you have to make sure that you haul about time for just the two of you. And there's a certain truth to that. But, but I think that it's just been a joy to say to them, one of the things that, at least in my experience, has been true is that you fall in love with your spouse all over again hmm. watching well, in my case, watching him interact with our kids, right, to watch our youngest little girl greet him at the door, and she lights up like a Christmas tree, and he lights up like a Christmas tree. I mean, who who would not just be deepened in that love by watching watching your spouse grow in his or her own virtue and skill set, but, but also be able to just guide these little people whom you love so much and he's the only other person in the world who loves him and knows him the way that you do. Just that's a, a, it's not something that you need to sort of guard against or be prepared to play defense with. It's actually something that bonds you as a couple. So I think often they've gotten, and again, maybe not overtly, but the message is 
kids are going to be a hurdle. Well, kids are exhausting, and kids are a lot of work, and they can be frustrating, but they're also joyful, and they make you laugh, and they are so much more (laughs) as a joy than anything you could put in. You're going to be tired by the end of the day, but to watch them grow is amazing, and you do it as a couple, and that's beautiful. And I think many young people say, oh, yeah, okay, I'm kind of nervous, but kind of excited about being a parent. But it's wonderful to be able to talk to them and say, you know, this might actually be everything you think it's going to be and even more beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, it's it's all sounds so very good and very appealing, and uh, we are out of time for our interview, but we're so grateful that you've shared with us, and it's whet our appetites for what's to come on Wednesday, January 27th, as part of the Archdiocesan Faith and Culture Series. So, Dr. David and Catherine Devil, we thank you so much for joining us here on Practicing Catholic, and God bless you as you continue this good work. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. All right. So, yep, go to archspm.org slash events to find out more about that. We'll hit it again at the end of the show. We're going to head into our first break. When we come back, we've got Catherine Patros and Stephen Lang with us, Totus Tuus missionaries. They're going to talk to us about Totus Tuus and how you can sign up. Stay with us. 